When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. In 1987, after nearly five Sisyphean years without answers, thanks to that Vax computer and tons of shoe leather detective work, at long last, the Green River Task Force detectives finally had a suspect in their sights, the man they would refer to as the truck painter. Their six-month investigation had led them down the rabbit hole of the man's past. Apparently, He'd been hiding a shadow self. Dark secrets, harbored and collected since boyhood. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Shadow Girls, an in-depth investigation into the victims of the Green River Killer. You're listening to Episode 6, Little Boy Blue. The truck painter was born in 1949. He was the middle child to Mary, who worked in retail, and Thomas, who was a bus driver. He had a big brother named Greg, and a little brother was named Thomas, who liked to be called Ed. The truck painter's parents frequently argued. His father was described as extremely passive, his mother overbearing. Both of the truck painter's ex-wives would later describe a very close relationship between the truck painter and his mother. In fact, his first wife complained that when they were married, she had to pressure him into getting his mother's name removed from his checkbook. She felt as husband and wife, they should be on the check register together, not his mother. Ironically, my high school friend Jason, the one who grew up next to the Green River by Peck Bridge, his dad, Rich, lived just a few doors away from the truck painter's family home when he was a kid, near Pack Highway. He lived about three houses down from us, him and his brother. You know, we knew each other from kids. Three years younger, he was held back, I think, twice at school. And then his older brother, Greg, was a year younger than him. We knew each other and stuff, but I, I just didn't do anything with them. I, you know, they just didn't do the same type of thing. Rich couldn't quite put his finger on why he kept his distance from the family. When Mary was interviewed about her middle son in 1987, she just said her boy was just a regular kid. He was a quiet boy, but I mean, he was uh, typical, typical uh, 
played ball and football, basketball, and everything anybody else played. Mm -hmm. Do you have any hobbies as a child? Other than you mentioned he was athletic. No. Just putting together uh, airplanes and things like that, you know, the usual. She admitted that academically he did struggle in school, and he wet the bed until the age of 13. Did he read books? He wasn't too good at school as far as uh, he didn't like school very much. Now, my oldest son, he loved school. And he had good grades and everything. But he, uh, he, well, when he was in the second grade, he wanted it because he just wasn't quite ready to go on to the next grade. But he was just a little behind. Did he like any particular TV programs? But at that time, we didn't have TV anyway. Oh, it was I wonder if Mother Mary's intuition kept her up at night when he was little. Did she sense that he was hiding secrets? That he set fires for fun? Then up the ante when he coaxed a stray cat into his arms? Secreting the animal down into their basement, stuffing it into a cooler, the cat hissing, scratching, clawing to get free. But he closed the lid, knowing he was sentencing that little cat to death, and he wouldn't open it until the next day, knowing full well it would die from suffocation. In the back of Mary's mind, I wonder, did she have an inkling about the little neighbor boy who nearly died? It was her son's first human victim. It would have been maybe late 63, early 64. Sound about right, or could it have been... um... Oh, it had to be right in there because I remember, uh, you know, when Kennedy was shot. Imagine a cute little tyke, six years old, wearing his wee little cowboy boots, a kid rifle slung across his chest, binoculars swinging around his neck, and a cowboy hat cocked to the side. Across the street where the high school is. That's correct. And were you in front of the school or behind the school? I was on the side of the school. Mm-hmm. My grandmother didn't like me being too far away, so I was where the baseball diamond was, is where I was uh, when I made contact with the, with the guy's dad. Now, how did that contact occur? Uh, some friends of mine were building a fort. They were cutting some trees down. Now, which friends are these? Oh, I couldn't tell you. You don't remember their names? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't run around with them too much. They lived down the block. They had cut some trees down across the street next to the... Uh, baseball time and we were playing in there and uh, they left to go home to get some things and uh, while I was waiting around for them I got a big stick and I was out there drawing in the dirt in the baseball time when they, uh, an older kid came up to me and, and asked me where I live. I lived around there and I told him I did. I lived right across the street in that greenhouse. Now by older kid what do you mean? Well I just knew he was a lot older than me. So you were about six years old we figured out. I was six and by older than you, I guess looking back on it now, if you had to guess age, what would you say? I'd say, you know, somewhere between six and ten years older than I was. More than six, maybe mm-hmm. eight or ten years older than me. So somewhere between 16 and 18. Yeah, 15 to, well, I don't think he was 18. He wasn't 18. He had to be, you know, between like, you know, 15, 16 years old, somewhere in there. All right, that's a good number. And he was uh, white male, Hispanic. No, he was white. He was a white male, okay. And color of his hair? Uh, best I can remember, it was brown. It was darker hair. Okay. Then the young truck painter was a teen. He'd been silently observing that little boy playing, waiting for his friends to leave, 
so he would be vulnerable, alone. You know, and asked me what I was doing around, asked me if I liked to build forts, and I told him that a couple of friends of mine were building a fort over in the trees there, and he said, that, you know, have you ever built a grass fort? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of, I never heard of one, and, and I was thinking about Indians or something, and I said, yeah, that'd be kind of neat. He said, you know, there's a, there's people around here that, that like to kill little boys like you. That's what he said to you? Okay. And uh, I said, no, I didn't know that. I knew there was a high school dance going on, and I asked him, I said, how come you're not at the dance? And he said he wasn't interested in going to the dance, or he didn't have his ID or something like that. He wanted me to go over into the forest across the way, and I told him I couldn't do that. My grandmother didn't allow me to cross that road. Fearful but curious, the little boy followed him into the tall grass. The teenager waltzed away in high spirits, leaving that helpless little boy to bleed out, alone in the wooded green space, in the tall grass. Hospital, um, where did you 
Where did you live? Did you go back to your um, grandparents' house? Yes, I did. And how long did you stay there? I stayed there for several more months. Okay. Uh, I never returned to the grade school after that. Okay. But you got a home tutor for me. Oh, okay. Because I still had, they had to cut me, they had to cut about a foot open on me to get the liver sewed up, so I had a lot of stitches. They never did find out who that mousy brown-haired teenager was. Back then, he was perfecting how to hide in plain sight. Police came out several times. The, the, the private detective came out uh, probably about a half a dozen times. He used to bring me comic books every time he'd come. And I don't, you know, I remember looking through, uh, of course, the, you know, the high school yearbooks and all that. Never really coming up with anybody in the high school yearbook. Marsha, the truck painter's second wife, never knew about that little boy. She had already learned early on in their marriage not to ask questions. He always said that what I didn't know wouldn't hurt me. And so he would never, he never told me anything that he didn't absolutely want me to know. He was controlling and he belittled Marsha. There was no communication. There was no real relationship. Um, I felt that he just wanted somebody to, to keep a house clean for him and, and uh, do the shopping and cooking. And he was always in the garage with his cars, working on them, doing something, playing around. All he wanted was food and sex, and that was it. (laughs) There was no communication. She became suspicious toward the end of their relationship, when her husband would often come home, hours late, sometimes musty and wet, boots muddy. But again, she learned not to ask questions. Did he ever seem irritated the fact that you were that you were asking? Yeah. Did he get angry with you and so that, you know, after a while you got so that you just wouldn't ask and, you know, continue to ask? Yeah. Yeah. And I I didn't want to aggravate him and get him mad. You see, my dad beat my mom all the time and I didn't. I kind of got scared that he might start doing this because there were a few times that he would start to hit me and then stop. I was raised with a father who who beat me all the time too and I was afraid that if I kept pursuing anything that he would maybe turn into this and I didn't want that because I loved him very much and I felt it was better just to leave things like they were and you know maybe it wasn't my business to find out every little detail and I didn't want to be a nagging wife you know and so I wouldn't I wouldn't pursue anything and get definite answers for anything and just took him at his word for stuff. And the truck painter's mother believed her son could do no wrong. Has he ever borrowed uh, any of your, your vehicles? Oh, no, we don't. we don't do that. In fact, he wouldn't because he he's independent and uh, he wouldn't borrow any of ours. Like I say, he has his own cars. He has no reason to borrow anybody's cars. He just doesn't do that. He can't afford to buy a car. He doesn't drive it, that's all. He's, uh, he's really tight. He pinches his pennies, but by golly, he owns, you know, he's buying his house and he's got all his furniture and stuff. He's, he doesn't sponge off of anybody. Mary would describe her son's obsession with fixing cars and dumpster diving. He was also known to just pull off the highway to troll for garbage. So he's just a real good kid. He's never been a problem. 
I, I can't say anything bad about him except that he's a tight bud and pinches pennies, that's all. Does, does he share much of his personal life with you? No, he just keeps everything to himself, you know. Mm-hmm. Once you talk to him, you know what he's like. He's, he's an open book, you know. But detectives pressed. Had she ever seen her son angry? He hang, handles his anger pretty well. Has he ever told you that he'd like to hurt somebody? He isn't that kind of a person. He just doesn't do that. I don't think he'd strike anybody if they hit him. He's that kind of a kid. I never thought, except with Greg, his older brother, they used to fight, you know, and, and with Ed. But, uh, no. You, would you, have you heard about the Green River investigation at all? Have you been following that? Uh, I did for a while. I haven't heard anything like that. So we're talking about that investigation? He's not interested in do you know how he feels about prostitutes? Has that ever come up as a conversation? He's never had anything to do with them, as far as I'm, as far as I know. He just—I don't think he ever would, because he's like I say, he always, never had a problem having a girlfriend, so there wouldn't be any reason to go to a pay somebody for him. <laughs> do you hear the fragility in her cackle? Is that her tell? Did she really believe what she was saying? Or deep down, in that moment, was she hoping it couldn't possibly be true? The Shadow Girls will continue after a word from our sponsors. And now, back to the Shadow Girls. After that six-month deep investigation into the truck painter's past, hopes were high that an arrest was imminent. Detective Tom Jensen says it all started falling into place. One of the elements that went into that with the, the assault on Rebecca Garday, the, the statements from the wife about choking him and various other things that was, were learned about him, but were all things that were part of the probable cause for a search warrant that was executed on his house in 1987. That's when... Um, it was the lead up to that. Probably about about a six month investigation led up to that uh, that warrant. Remember, earlier in the investigation, the bar for a potential suspect was proving that he could be the GRK. But now, the investigative protocol was putting together evidence to eliminate a suspect. It was important to interview associates and people that knew them and were with them, so you could narrow down the exact date and time and location that they disappeared. Because that's the only thing you have to uh, incriminate or eliminate a suspect. What were you doing on July 7th, 1982? Well, I was on vacation in Montana. And if you can prove that, you didn't do it. There was a lot of, I I would call it backwards police work. We would get a tip on a a suspect. And what our goal was is was to try to eliminate it as opposed to um, incriminate And during the six months investigating the truck painter, nothing they had dug up could eliminate him. The VAX computer was essential in assisting the investigators so that they could finally see this 30,000-foot view of the truck painter and his life. There was one thing that was worrying, the larger, unanswered question. Why did it appear that the GRK had stopped killing in 1985? I mean, it goes without saying, but I'll say it. It's a good thing. But from an investigative standpoint, given the GRK's history and what investigators knew about serial killers, 
It just didn't seem likely that he could stop. Even Ted Bundy, the self-proclaimed serial killer consultant, was convinced that something had changed in the Riverman's life because in his so-called expert opinion, the GRK would never stop killing. Still quite significant to me that after Mary Sudeo drops off like it did, I mean, you haven't, nobody has turned up yet. And I'm not saying stop, like you say, there's no guarantee to stop, but he's gotten a lot smarter somehow. Something has changed in Oct- around October of 83 because he may, have, he may not have moved. He may not have been struck by lightning. You think it's possible that this guy could stop? No. No, well, unless he got, you know, unless he uh, was born again <laughs> and got filled with the Holy Spirit in a very real way, uh, he's either moved, he's either dead, or he's either doing something very different. Taking a fresh investigative eye with all that they learned over the years, they had to wonder, wouldn't any potential suspect have a significant life event in their history to explain how a serial killer murders over 40 people over a year and a half, then just suddenly stops? Had the killer moved on? Was he behind bars? Or was he dead? Something had changed, but what was it? These unanswered questions plagued the investigation of the truck painter because nothing really changed in his life that was out of the ordinary. But a quiet subpoena of his time cards revealed that on every date that a victim of the GRK had disappeared, he had not been on the clock. The truck painter's life was dissected. Other than his divorce from Marcia in 1981, there just weren't any obvious signs of stress in his life. Sure, a divorce is painful, but he'd already been through a divorce once before. Conversely, nothing in his life shed any light on why he might stop killing at the end of 1984. He hadn't moved, hadn't changed jobs, and he wasn't in prison, and he wasn't dead. There was just one major life change in early 1985. He started dating a new woman. Her name was Judith. And, and how was he? What type of man was he? Oh, the best. Nice, sweet, gentle. We're best friends. Okay, so you hang out a lot together. Yes. If the truck painter was the GRK, a serial killer who would go down in history as one of the most prolific murderers of all time, how was it even possible that a new love in his life was the reason that he'd stopped his killing spree? The truck painter met Judith at a singles group, Parents Without Partners. The social club gathered at the White Shutters restaurant on Pack Highway near the Strip. Later, Judith would share with detectives how she met the love of her life. Well, I got divorced in 1984, and I lived in an apartment with another girl. And at the White Shutters, they had this Parents Without Partners and country western music. Is that and something I, you enjoy, country western? And I went there, and that's where we met. And what year was that? 1985. Do you remember what month? February. It was his birthday, vacation, time off. He had a couple days off. I mean, did birthday. he have a permanent job? He works at Kenwood. Okay, and at that time in 85, he was working He's there? He's been there since high school. Okay. okay, and were you working anywhere at that time? I think I was ta- either taking care of a, a lady and her two children or cleaning house at the time. I've always been a homemaker. As a local, I'd never heard of the restaurant. A quick internet search of white shutters popped up an article from 2001 by Seattle Times reporter Carlton Smith. In the article, Smith describes going to the restaurant to chase down some leads on the GRK case. 
Smith, along with fellow investigative reporter Thomas Guillen, were dogged in their decades-long investigation of the GRK case. In fact, all of their work on the case was later culminated into a book which they co-wrote called The Search for the Green River Killer, The True Story of America's Most Wanted Serial Killer. But back to that article that Smith wrote in 2001, where he details a visit to the White Shutters. I'm including a snippet here because I believe it perfectly captures what I remember it being like in the community, especially in the early days of the investigation, where even a reporter chasing down leads was cause for someone to call in a tip at the task force hotline. Carlton writes, I once made it a habit to check the bar, looking over the middle-aged men slumped on their stools, nursing their drinks, trying to envision a serial killer among them. Once, I showed a picture of a missing woman to a bartender. A patron reported me as a suspicious person to what was then the King County Police. The patron, it turns out, was a police reserve officer. While I was wondering about him, he was wondering about me. And while I was later kitted by police for being a suspicious character, quote, a person of interest, it remains an indicator of the paranoia generated in those days. Back then, it could have been anyone. But in 1985, Judith wasn't thinking about the GRK at the White Shutters. She was enjoying a budding romance with the truck painter over their shared love of swap meets and garage sales. We'd always go to the swap meet okay. and sell stuff. Is that, We're both pack rats. We okay. like to see Somebody's stuff. hobby. We don't like to see stuff go in the garbage in the landfill, so we'd always... Oh, it was great because my ex-husband never let me have yard sales. So you both so, enjoy yes. swap meets? Oh, we, we do. We have so much fun doing that together. That apartment that Judith shared with a friend was off Pack Highway, and it was close to the truck painter's home. The same residence the Des Moines police officer had been called to after Marie Malvar went missing, a detail he had not shared with Judith when he would take her out for a meal at McDonald's. We'd sit and hold hands, have a hamper, and you'd go off to work and you'd go home? Mm-hmm. I'd either go home or go to his apartment, to his house. Okay. That was after. I didn't go to his house till after a couple months. Okay. Not right away. <laughs> All right. So how long did you actually date before you started, like, going to his house to spend the night? About two months, two to three months. And, just like the lies the truck painter had told his mother Mary about his ex-wives where he painted himself as the victim... So was the backstory he shared with Judith. What about, um, did you ever say anything negative about Marcia? I mean, not really negative. Did you know why Just they broke up? They had disagreements and he would be home and she would be working. And or, she, she used to be a country western singer and stay out late with the band and groups. And he would be home babysitting. So, so he, I don't know all those details. Okay. But, yeah, that's all I can I, remember. I guess that. I should just, I'll just ask you, he's, um, he had mentioned that she was unfaithful to him. Do you know anything uh, about that, why he was? She was probably with some of the band people, maybe. I have no idea. Okay. That's where I met her when what? I was the Seattle Singles, because I'd never been single. Oh, okay. I was married for 19 years the first time. What about? Um, and I went to Seattle Singles first. What about Claudia? Did he ever mention if she was unfaithful, or did he have any? She was a high school Girlfriend, they mm-hmm. got married. He went into the service, and she dated other men while he was in the service in Vietnam. Did that bother him? It probably did. I know it would bother me if I was a man, you know, and, and going to war. 
Within a few months, Judith moved into his home where she says life was perfect. In her eyes, he was everything she had been looking for. Judith says her relationship with the truck painter grew even stronger, especially after her young adult daughter moved in with them. She saw firsthand how important family was to her new man. Three years, he lived there prior. Mm-hmm. And then my daughter and my and her boyfriend and, and a couple of babies, they moved in with us for a while, and he helped me take, helped take care of my daughters. And were they actually staying with you at the Military yeah. Road residence? Yes. All right. And he helped. Well, when I got divorced, my daughter came and wanted to be with me. Prior to that, my daughter was living with me, and she met her boyfriend. And Do you just have one daughter? I have two daughters. Both of them living with you, or just the one? No, just the one. Investigators would dig into Judith and the truck painter's sex life. She said he was a gentle lover, and if there were any issues, it was because of her. Your, your sexual relationship with him, would you consider that normal? I would say it's normal. May or, well, normal to maybe a little bit. It's hard for me to say. Because of some of my, my problems, I don't, I'm not the one that always wants to. You know, engage in, engage in sex. sex or relations. But um, I do, I enjoy it, well, mostly on the weekends, and then sometimes during the week. It's not like every single day. If, if he I'm could have, <laughs> sorry, if he could have sex with you every day, would he want to? I mean, is he? If he could, if he, he wanted, if, he wa- if he wanted to, he could. I'm asking, does he have a high sex drive higher than you? Probably a little higher than me. Because of my situation before we met. And my first husband was homosexual. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he would bring men over. Yeah. I'm remembering now one time when we were out camping on one of the, out in the mountains or in the parks or trees or someplace, green water, I guess that's where it was, out where you can just see the stars and everything. We were sitting in the back of the truck and talking and, you know, I let him know that, I wasn't used to a man wanting me mm-hmm. and things, you know, personal things. And he was gentle. He didn't rush or push or he wasn't forward or anything. Any sexual relations have, in, have just been, you know, slow and comfortable. Was the truck painter's new relationship with Judith in 1985 the catalyst for him to stop killing if he was the GRK? Time would certainly tell. In April of 1987, the truck painter's quietly guarded secret life had finally caught up with him. We'll be right back with the Shadow Girls after a word from our sponsors. And now, we continue with the Shadow Girls. At the Kenworth Trucking Company, detectives showed up with a search warrant which authorized them to take the truck painter into custody to collect a hair sample search his locker, and to seize his truck from the plant's parking lot. A former co-worker who was at the plant that day says the situation was something she would never forget. When we were working in Seattle and when they, the police came down there and questioned him in, I think it was 87, he, people gave him the name Green River. And that carried with him over to all the years that uh, at Kenworth. So you were you were at Kenworth when the police came there in you think eighty seven? Yeah, they 
cleaned his locker out and handcuffed him and took him away. Meantime, another team descended on the Rambler where he had lived after his divorce with Marcia, the home he would later share with Judith and her daughter. Forensic scientists removed carpet samples and fiber evidence, but they were too late. Investigators would learn that day when they interviewed the truck painter's younger brother, the old carpet was gone. He's fixing the house up down there, son. What's he, what's he doing to the house? Well, he had to put uh, the new framework around the doors, and new doors, and replace some windows. Drapes. I don't know about drapes. <laughs> carpets. Yeah, he replaced the carpets in there because I got, had the old ones here. You had the old carpets from his house there? Yeah. In here. Do you still have them here? Nope. What those went out a long time ago. When did he give you those? Shoot, that was about eight months ago. It took a long time to get rid of those dumb things, too. Why is that? Well, nobody wants a dingy, dirty green, dirty green. I mean, it was a nasty color green, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so he took, he took the carpets out of his house. Yeah, and mainly, and gave it to you know, you. like, uh, see, the toilet overflowed, and it water stained not only the bathroom carpet, but the bedroom carpet right next door, because... It went under the, the baseball. Yeah. yeah. So, now this and green carpet... that out, plus the closet. Yeah. Plus then, a uh, time later, his washing machine overflowed. Those water stains every place there, too, so he done the whole house. Yeah. So, this green carpet was uh, given to you here? This was about eight months ago? Yeah, about eight months. How long did you have it? About four or five months. Mm -hmm. Finally, we just ended up burning it. Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) Nobody wanted it. Detectives asked if the brother was aware that his older brother had been talked to previously by the task force. Did you know that he was talked to by the members of the Green River Task Force at one time? I don't know. He never said anything to you about that? Did he ever say anything to your mom and dad about that? I never heard anything. Then again, they don't always tell me something. Uh, As they figure, it's none of my business. Are you surprised to know that detectives from the Green River Task Force talked to him before? Now I am, yeah. Because I never knew that either. The truck painter refused to be interviewed by detectives or take another polygraph test. The circumstantial evidence had been enough to get that search warrant, but a judge wouldn't sign off on an arrest. Since his truck had been towed to the crime lab, the truck painter asked the detectives for a lift to his childhood home, where his parents still lived near the SeaTac Strip. The search warrants were so well executed that they were over before media had even gotten wind. The sheriff's office would issue a press release that a search warrant had been activated, but the person of interest to the Green River Task Force had not been arrested. Over the years, both the task force and news media had learned to be extremely cautious when announcing developments in the case, especially after the fiasco with that trapper in 1985, who had endured a four-hour-long interrogation while the media staked out his home and multiple news outlets released his name as a suspect when he was never charged. Subsequently, the man who they had issued a search warrant for his home, work, and truck would not be named in the news that day. He would be referred to as the truck painter. It would take a month for the crime lab to process the fruits from those searches. An excruciating wait for detectives. Did they finally have their man? 
would this nightmare at long last be over? And when the day arrived when they would finally get the answer to that question, a resounding no. The Washington State Crime Lab would find absolutely nothing to connect the truck painter to the crime scenes or the victims. Detective Jensen says that was a dark day. We didn't arrest him in 87. We had a warrant for a saliva sample from him. Oh. And part of, that was part of the warrant we got. We got so we picked him up and got the saliva sample, which so he was never under arrest. And, and he uh, asked for an attorney. And so we, he was just released after we got the gauze, the gauze too. So. And how frustrating was that? I mean, you've got to just be like, I mean, he just seems like he is. The majority of the people on the task force were pretty convinced that we had the right guy there, but we just didn't have the evidence. And uh, so it was just a matter of waiting until the science caught up with the evidence that we had. Did a little of the Green River Task Force's collective will die that day? After all that work, knowing that the truck painter was scot-free and back to work at the truck plant? But life for him at Kenworth would never be the same. Say anything to you about being a suspect, or uh, um, well, everybody knew. So. Did he ever? Did you ever have any conversation with him? I mean, no. did you ever ask him why he was a suspect? Or no. Did he? Ever, did you ever hear him deny any involvement? Um, he said, well, he did make a comment one time that he, you know, dr- drives up and down 99, and so basically he knew a hangout at taverns or something up there, and he knew a lot of the people, and that was it. That was just. Judith says the arrest of her boyfriend was a shock. In 1987, April 8th, that was a pretty significant event. Yes, yeah. we, the whole family was shook up. I was shook up and didn't know what in the world was happening and going on. Judith says that although the news was shocking, the entire family rallied around the truck painter. They were saying that he looked like somebody. Who's they? The um, police or the... Green River. The Green River, a bunch of people. He said he didn't do it. He didn't do anything. And that was it? No other explanation? So long. Um, and I was with his mom and dad, and, you know, they, we were all, you know, trying to comfort each other and figure out what all was happening and going on at that time. Can you elaborate on that at all? Or, what do you mean? Or, well, what did they say I mean, other than comforting each other? Oh, his mom and dad? Sure. Well, I remember riding in the truck. They didn't. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Was he angry at the police, or did you just did he just kind of cooperate and go along with the program, or or was he mad his house got searched, or what do you remember, or was he just like an everyday thing? Well, he didn't get upset or real mad, but um, you know we we would talk and wonder. And did he have much contact with his attorney? He had an attorney. Did he talk to his attorney very much? And there was some. I don't remember the attorney's name. I'd have to get the papers out and stuff. Did you see any paperwork? About it? Yes. I probably did at that time. Do you remember anything that was said in the paperwork? Mm-hmm. I don't remember all that. I put it all in the past. He convinced his family that he had been the victim of a witch hunt. It was all just a big misunderstanding. His brother Greg. At some point back in the back in the 80s about uh, driving up and down First Avenue South and why you did it. I mean, it's very specifically, why did you get yourself involved? In, I mean, it's like South, back out. 
And he says, well, just, he didn't like taking the freeway. Well, it seems to be plausible to me. A lot of people don't like taking the freeway. A lot of people today drive back highway rather than go the freeway. Okay. So that's what he told me, and it certainly, like everything else, seemed to be you know, a rational, reasonable explanation. And Judith was just ready to put the whole ordeal in the rearview mirror. We got married in 88. I told him after three years, he's not getting rid of me. We're getting married. Okay. And uh, what did he think about marriage? He said, okay. A twist of fate brought a woman named Bonita Gilchrist into my orbit. Or more accurately, my mother. Bonita lives in the same senior housing complex as my mom. And when she found out about my work on the Shadow Girls series, she wanted to share her story what it was like working with the truck painter. Bonita says they were really tight, but after that 1987 search warrant, she too became wary of her co-worker. When they come down to Kenworth and tore his locker apart, That's and they right. tore his house apart, came down, and then after that, I kind of like, I said, did you do that? And he said, no. Because there's a couple times that when we had Bible study, he said, Bonita, I did something really bad. And I went, what'd you do? He said, well, I can't tell you, but he said, well, God forgive you for anything. And I said, yeah, except for two sins, blasphemy of the Holy Ghost and suicide. Well, I've done something so bad, I don't think God will forgive me. But he never would tell me. And she wasn't the only one who had weird feelings about the truck painter, especially when he was up close. For displaying any odd or offensive behaviors at work. Oh, yeah. And can you describe those to me? Uh, he had a, a, a strange sense of humor, um, and I didn't feel comfortable around him. Uh, one day, in between the booth and the lockers, he put his hands on my shoulders, mm-hmm. and I turned around and told him, you don't know me that well to touch me, and I prefer you not to, and I asked uh, at that time... Uh, called the business agent or our shop steward at the time and asked him to talk with him about touching people. And did he? Yeah. And, and he didn't bother me anymore. Okay. And was that his idea of a joke, or what's the point of that contact, do you know? Just being friendly. Okay. So his hands put on your shoulder softly, or does he put them no, there just with force? You know, just touching, but I... Um, as I say, I didn't really care for the person, and I didn't really uh, want him touching me. After the search warrant was executed, and it was revealed to be a bust, with no forthcoming arrest, it was perceived as yet another letdown. The task force had failed once again. Each time they came up short, another line of inquiry, belly up. But what was overlooked was all the blood, sweat, and tears in an exhausting and often demoralizing investigation. Another letdown for the victims and their families, and on the morale of the entire community. This latest blow with the truck painter further deepened anger and frustration that was leveled against the task force, and it ratcheted up that ever-present distrust of police, coupled with an apathy toward the investigation. And the rumblings continued to grow that the GRK was a cop. They'd always been there, like a steady drumbeat. It just kept getting stronger and stronger and louder, especially after the untimely death of one of the task force's newest members. In May of 1987, the newly minted commander of the task force, 
Captain James Pompey, died during a recreational dive with some of his co-workers in the Puget Sound. Captain Pompey had a little diving experience, and he was in excellent physical condition. He had top-of-the-line gear. An investigation into his death ruled it as accidental. It was a tragedy, not a murder. But this excursion happened just days after the crime lab had sent shockwaves to the task force with their announcement that zero physical evidence tied the truck painter to the GRK case. Many just wouldn't accept that Pompey's death was an accident. The rumor mill inside and outside the sheriff's office persisted. Was Captain Pompey's air tank tampered with because he had stumbled onto information he shouldn't have? There was a belief that his death was part of a larger conspiracy to protect a killer cop. Wouldn't that explain why the GRK case hadn't been solved? Remember those Seattle Times reporters I had mentioned earlier in the episode, Carlton Smith and Thomas Guillen? As it turns out, not only had Smith been turned in as a possible suspect because of his perceived obsession with the case, but Guillen had as well. They were both ultimately cleared by the task force, According to the book that they would later write, around the time of Captain Pompey's death, they were assigned to leave no stone unturned and to answer the question, why was it taking so long to find the killer? Was there anything to the rumors of a larger conspiracy at play? A lot of people believe there was a cover-up, or even worse, police collusion. Could a cop be the Green River Killer? Since 1982, there's been another investigative team on the trail, not just of the killer, but the police themselves. We didn't have any really, uh, any any real sense of whether or not the police were doing the appropriate thing, whether or not the politics had become involved in this, as it did in Atlanta and as it did in other jurisdictions when this problem happened. We simply didn't know what was really happening with this investigation. We have to be there. We have to tell the public. We have to do our job. But uh, we do things differently than the other media, and I, th- and I hope they respect it. Dean and Smith are investigative reporters for the Seattle Times. We need a little bit more copy for the story, Rowan. On their own time, they've created an amazing diary of who was where on the SeaTac strip for every day of the murders. Our responsibility to the public and to our readers was to find out just what this police task force that had spent the 12 or 15 million or however much it is at this point, whether or not they were doing their job in a way that the taxpayers had a right to expect that they were. The focal point of the Seattle Times investigation was on the King County Sheriff's Vice Unit during the 1982-1984 timeframe. Was there any evidence to support the theory that the GRK was an undercover vice cop working the strip? These were incredibly stressful days for the sheriff's office, and the politicians, beholden to a wary public, bombarded with news criticizing not only the rising costs of the task force, but also the lack of progress in finding the killer. And now, the task force itself was being openly investigated by the Seattle Times to uncover if one of their own was the GRK. At the end of their investigation, the Seattle Times would report that there was no evidence of a cover-up or that the Green River Killer was a cop. But the story revealed what investigators already knew from the very beginning of the investigation. The task force hadn't taken seriously the many missing persons reports in 1983 until it was too late, which wasn't breaking news to the detectives working the case. 
the true scope of it wasn't as obvious um, from 82 until, oh, say, fall of 1983. Um, they, they knew that there were people missing, but the bodies hadn't been turning up until the fall. And then the total went from like six or seven to about 10 to 14, nothing flat. And so um, it, was, it was disturbing and it was, it was something everybody was aware of. In, in police work, particularly in the area that I worked, I worked the area that was Burien, you know, and, and down towards the river. So that was our part of our jurisdiction. Missing young people, runaways, and vulnerable adults who vanished without a trace wasn't just a problem within law enforcement, but a deeply systemic issue involving the entire community. Remember, Detective Reichard made no bones about how the community felt about teen runaways when he was interviewing Ted Bundy. We have two detectives that are exclusively devoted to looking at the entire missing person problem in 1984, which is quite monumental because the missing juvenile problem is that nobody gives a shit, and uh, especially nobody gives a darn about uh, runaway juveniles. So they end up uh, with mountains of lists to go through and verify if they're home or not because nobody has cleared them. This guy's figured it out by now. Oh, no. He's, he's way ahead of us. I mean, he's so far ahead of us, he's, uh, it's unreal. And Reichert's frustration and anger would never quell when it came to how the victims were treated. He saw firsthand that for many, it was simply more convenient to believe that a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old had chosen to continue their victimization and sexual exploitation and prostitution. Even today, cultural anthropologist Dr. Deborah Boyer says we haven't fully committed to taking care of vulnerable children, despite evidence that prior sexual victimization and poverty are well-established antecedents to prostitution. An exploiter comes along, sees the vulnerabilities and says, I'll be your boyfriend, I'll be your father, I'll be your brother, I'll be your protector, I'll take care of you. You won't need anybody but me. You just have to do this for me so that we can have some money and be able to get along and you don't have to go back to that abusive situation. And it really happens so quickly and so easily that it is scary. So as a, as a society, do we need to do more to identify kids? Um, in prevention of abuse in the home is a challenging, challenging problem. If we can have um, opportunities like, talk, like the Committee for Children curricula where kids can tell somebody so that, they can get, so that they can get help so that there can be an intervention, that is one important thing that we can do. Now, the success of those interventions, we know the difficulties with child protective services and how they are underfunded and the lack of alternative placements and homes you know, we just have to commit to taking care of children. As 1987 was wrapping up, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, George Michael's Faith, and Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bangles were the top hits of the day. Three Men and a Baby and Fatal Attraction were the top two grossing movies. But the victims of the Green River Killer never got the chance to eat popcorn while watching a movie or sing a song in the shower. Their lives were stolen in most cases, before they even had the opportunity to grow up. The GRK's victims included mothers too, leaving behind children who would never see their mommies again. 
Over five years had passed since Wendy Cofield's body had been found by those curious boys riding their bikes over Peck Bridge on that hot summer day. Half a decade had gone by. So much had changed, and yet one thing remained a constant. The GRK still walked free, and the task force seemed no closer to finding him. As time wore on, many began to accept that the GRK would remain a ghost forever. And as the profile of his victim had been so callously cemented into the local fabric, the worry moved from fear of being a victim to hoping you wouldn't find the skeletal remains of another victim out in the woods. My friend Jason. That changed over time. You know, when I was in, you know, fifth and sixth grade about, you know, that was very scary. But, you know, as junior, senior in high school, it was completely different just because of the, the nature of the victims and, you know, who I was. Other than just always being weird and just always something new and another body and you're just kind of always looking around the corner doing a double take you know at things as a kid you know is there a body over there is that just a dog laying down or you know you're always you know skeptical a little apprehensive and my childhood best friend jamie had similar concerns think about all the times you played in that water and all those that's what would creep me out when i went to go float down the river i'm like oh please don't let me run into somebody dead that was like my worst fear of playing in that water was that i'm gonna stumble across a dead person and the feeling that someone you knew could be the GRK. And then I remember Scott and I talking as it got worse and worse, and they couldn't find him and they couldn't catch him. Scott and I started looking at his brother. <laughs> you can hear a sort of macabre laughter with my friend, and it might be tempting to skew that laughter as insincere or callous. But it really is a byproduct of what it was like for many kids growing up in the 80s when a serial killer is out murdering young women over the span of decades where people and children are finding bodies and skeletal remains, and all of this is served up to the public as breaking news. And what of the victims' families? It's just unspeakably cruel what they continued to endure throughout the years. But it just takes a toll collectively on the community when a serial killer just keeps getting away with murder over and over and over again. You might remember the angst expressed by the producer of this show, Brandon Morgan, who from the beginning knew nothing of the Green River Killer investigation when we first started. And like so many people that I've talked to, couldn't fathom why it took so long. And how frustrating it is that they haven't found this guy every time they find a new young girl dead. It's only the 80s. It's not like the 20s. There was technology in the 80s. Like, why did it take so fucking long? I'll admit in the beginning, I was guilty of wanting easy answers, too, when I first interviewed Detective Reichert. Walk us through a timeline of the intensity of finding those first five bodies in the Green River and then how many years until the case kind of went cold and just however you want to, you know, chip away at, at this 30-year saga. You know, everybody wants to know about the case, so I'll give presentations and they'll give me, you know, 20 minutes, so... I have 20 minutes to tell you a story that took 19 years right to solve. But as I was researching the GRK investigation for over a year and a half during the pandemic, I began to understand on a deeper level why this case is so hard for people to wrap their heads around. On the outside looking in, Brandon's outrage of why'd it take so fucking long seems a fair question to ask given the amount of time and resources spent on the case. And yet, when you peel back the layers from a different perspective, say from the inside looking out, 
you begin to understand what a challenging case it truly was from the very beginning. Even looking through the now digitized case files that took years to organize and input into a database, I began to understand the complexity of a case, unlike any other in terms of length and breadth. And let's face it, from the beginning, detectives were always in a perpetual state of catch-up. You just learn the facts and stuff, and you sort them out. And again, you do. You do take things one day at a time. Is the big tip going to come in today? Or what are we working on today? At the same time, and, and, and this is what happened in basically 1984 when we recovered so many remains. We were spending days in the woods recovering victims' bodies and bones, and there was no time or people left over to do the investigative side of it. So that started falling more and more behind. And then we had to, as we identified the victims, it was important to interview associates and people who knew them and were with them so you could narrow down the exact date and time and location that they disappeared. And their worst fears would be realized that he had slowed down, but the GRK hadn't stopped in 1985. In June of 1987, a couple of kids were strolling a heavily wooded ravine near the Green River Community College. They were looking for aluminum cans to recycle for change. As they skimmed the old growths, nooks, and crannies, they uncovered human remains. The Green River Task Force was called. They roped up the crime scene as they had done far too many times before because they were now a well-oiled machine when it came to collecting forensic evidence in green spaces across King County. Dr. Bill Hagland was the chief medical investigator who spent countless hours and days on his hands and knees, sifting, digging, searching for evidence. Detective Tom Jensen would say that Hagland would never speculate on who the skeletal remains might belong to at the crime scene, even though it was more likely than not that he knew exactly who it was, because he'd spent years collecting and poring over the dental records of missing girls. He was so dedicated to the victims that he had committed to memory the teeth characteristics from their dental x-rays. But he had too much reverence for the victims and their families that he wouldn't say who it was until he knew for sure it was a positive match. According to a recent obituary, Bill Hagland, like so many of the task force, gave his all to the case because he knew well what it was to lose a loved one to a heinous crime. In his late teens, Hagland's own mother, who had struggled with alcoholism, had been stabbed to death in a bar. Obviously, the horror of his mother's death had made an impression. But years later, when he performed one of his very first autopsies, he would recall pulling back the white sheet, revealing the tiny body of a child who had been beaten to death. Haglin would say that child's murder fueled his work as a forensic scientist and victim advocate during the long GRK investigation. He would say, quote, I thought that child was helpless and innocent, and we are their advocates. We speak for them. We are witnesses for them, and I like that voice. The forested crime scene near the Green River Community College, where those kids were innocently looking for cans and happened upon the skeletal remains that Haglin would later identify as Cindy Ann Smith. Cindy had been last seen hitchhiking on the SeaTac Strip in early 1984. By this time, the task force had meticulously collected 
more than 9,000 pieces of evidence, which included four sets of unidentified skeletal remains. Their family still had no idea what had happened to their daughters. By the end of that summer, in September of 1987, a kid was riding a dirt bike in the woods when he came across human remains just off the remote Auburn Black Diamond Road. The victim, a teenage girl, was nude except for one pink sock. Her remains were found on the same highway where Cindy Smith had been discovered in June, and also Yvonne Antosh's body was found in 1983. Those skeletal remains would later be identified as Debbie Ann Gonzalez. Later, it would be determined that Debbie was not a victim of the Green River Killer. Her murder is still unsolved. According to Debbie's mother, Dorina, the last time she had seen her daughter alive was after an argument. Debbie had wanted to go out and celebrate her birthday with friends. She had just turned 14. Debbie's older brother, Joe, spoke with Q13 recently and says, like a lot of kids back then, Debbie wanted to go party with her friends. Teenagers back then, we were different than the teenagers are now. Uh, A lot of us were very rebellious and wanted to do what we wanted to do, but, uh, you know, we got to come home and grow up and still, you know, be here and live, live a life. She didn't. The place where Debbie's body was found was deep in the woods and described as a place where teens gathered for keggers and bonfires. They asked specifically if she was wearing uh, an ankle bracelet with a little charm on it. And she was. I remember her wearing that. We broke down instantly. It was a month and a half that she was out in those woods. When they found her, um, she was only wearing one pink sock and that ankle bracelet. Ironically, my friend Jason recalled very well that summer of 1987, because it was that summer when he came so close to finding a victim of the GRK in that same green space. I recall one night, Mark and I were hanging out. Uh, I, can't, I don't know if we had drink a beer in one of the parks or just hanging out or something. It was Friday, Saturday night. And a week later, they found a body right where we were at. Like, shit. Um, that kind of freaked us out. What freaked out Jason more than anything was finding out that he had already met the GRK when he was a little boy. He'd shaken his hand. Nothing stood out about him. So I, 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 you know, that's, I remember shaking his hand the first time, but I think there's two other, three times in passing, possibly. Um, but, you know, as a, at that age, you know, I don't pay attention to your, all your parents' friends. Or, so, you know, not, he wasn't overly friendly, but he wasn't overly weird. He was just... You know, he wasn't rude. He wasn't mean. I mean, just a nice, came across as a nice, cordial person. Nothing, not overly nice, but just right down the middle of the lane. That would, wouldn't distinguish him from any other person going down the middle of the lane. And so that was, I guess that was it. Um, you know, looking back upon it. And I think that's, you know, he got away with so much because no one ever... There is no, nothing distinguishable about him. Next time on The Shadow Girls. With nothing to lose, desperation leads to inspiration. The Shadow Girls is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Our producer is Brandon Morgan. We're executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio. 
Our post-production supervisor is Casey Wayland. Supervising sound editor, Victoria Chang. Edited by Michael Dean Wilkins.